Welcome to the Religion and Story podcast. On this week's episode, we're going to be talking about atonement theory, the work of Christ on the cross. So, Daniel, why don't you kick us off and introduce us to the many different ideas on atonement theory? Yeah, so there are three main atonement theories that um, Christians are usually dealing with. The first one, and possibly the oldest one, is called ransom theory. And it's the idea that the death of Christ was paying some sort of ransom. Uh, usually it's thought that that ransom is paid to Satan. Uh, sometimes ransom is paid to death itself. You may be familiar with the atonement theory called Christus Victor. Uh, it's the idea that Jesus died and when he was raised he defeated death in that way. And Christus Victor is usually thought of as a, as a sub-theory of the ransom theory. The next big one is satisfaction theory, and satisfaction theory is the one that dominates most of Protestantism. Um, most Christians that I know subscribe to some sort of satisfaction theory, um, and it's the idea that Jesus' death satisfied the some law or the wrath of God. Penal substitution theory, uh, maybe something you might also be familiar with, is again a subcategory of satisfaction theory. Penal substitution is really just saying that satis it's saying satisfaction again, but giving it a more legal understanding. And then finally, the third theory that we're going to look at, and there are more beyond this. Orthodox Greek Orthodox and other Orthodox Christians have their own group of uh, atonement theories. But moral influence, the last one that we want to look at, is the idea that Jesus's death. Its greatest importance was in the moral standard that it put forth, that it inspired Christians to understand that, that we are to be servants unto death, um, and in that death, that is where we find our ultimate calling in God. Um, so those are the, the, main, the main theories. What are y'all's thoughts on those theories? Which ones do you like? Which ones do you not like? Well, first of all, uh, well... Which ones do I like? I like whatever one is uh, the most scripturally accurate. Is that a good that's enough good. answer for that's you? That's good. I like okay. that. All right. Yeah, that's the cop-out answer that I'll give. Now, uh, so which ones would you say we could immediately rule out uh, due to contradictions that we find in other areas of scripture? I mean, because they do have some support. Each of them do. But which ones do not hold up when we start dotting I's and crossing T's as far as uh, how they how they relate to either the story that's told about God's plan of salvation or fundamental look at how we are reconciled to God? So I think the first thing that we need to note, along with the lines of what you were saying, Stephen, is that all of these have a, at least a grain of truth to them. However, I would say that some of them stop short of telling the complete story of the atonement. Uh, for example, the, the last one that Dana was presenting, the idea that Jesus was setting us, setting us a moral example, well, that's true, but that is certainly not the entirety of what was going on on the cross. That theory does not take into account all of Scripture and what Scripture has to say about the work that went on on the cross. So I, I would first put forward that simply viewing the death of Jesus as a moral victory for his followers is just not enough to say really what was going on on the cross. Now, I myself am, am someone that always goes back to penal substitutionary atonement and how important that is 
to, to understand each part of that for the Christian story. But I also like the idea of, of redemption theology, that we are that we are redeemed from sin, that we sold ourselves off as, as slaves to sin, that we we were not able to pay our own debts, and Jesus had to buy us back. I don't necessarily think that that in every way contradicts penal substitutionary atonement, but I'm, I'm interested to hear what, what y'all think as well. I personally don't see too much difference between the two. Uh, it's just almost a different way of saying the exact same thing, and I, I would like a better explanation of what's the difference between the two. As far as I'm concerned, buying somebody back and substituting one, one, one is almost using like a currency view of it, where the other, it takes a purchase out of it, but it's a trade. Uh, so is there a better way to explain the difference between the two? I mean, so one thing I'll note is that uh, penal substitutionary atonement is more in line with the Reformed tradition, whereas the, the ransom theory, Christus Victor, is more patristic, you know, kind of going, going back further in, in time and earlier in church history. I think that we shouldn't see them contradicting each other. But Daniel, I'm curious, to, since you introduced them that way, how you see them maybe contradicting each other, maybe not. Yeah, so the order we introduced in, the, in was giving them in a chronological order in which they developed. I would say you probably, biblically, you will find the most support for satisfaction. And then next, just right under it, is going to be ransom. And then a great deal under it, but still present, is moral influence. So you can uh, get some scriptural uh, support for that. I do think, however, that satisfaction, and specifically penal substitution, has the has A, the most bias from the Reformers, not just the Reformed tradition being Calvin, but also all of the Reformation, including Luther, that they introduced a degree of legality that is somewhat present in Scripture, but they read a lot more into it than I think is really there and changed sure, a lot of the sure. previous thought. Um, and I think that is, not only is that maybe unhealthy, but my, my second point is that you might have some logical difficulties supporting those theories. But not completely, because obviously very smart people have supported them for a long time. I, I think that what, what? they do have difficulties. And I, I specifically, I think it's easiest to support Christus Victor um, as a conquering over death. Um, I focus mainly on 1 Corinthians 15, for that, with all the resurrection theology, at the end of the chapter, you get a lot of defeating death. And I think that helps us understand this the best. But go ahead. So let me just say one thing for the record. I separate ransom theory from Christus Victor. I don't see those. I, I see generally ransom theory as something that is more centered in Scripture, whereas Christus Victor is an offshoot that... It, and it all, seems incomplete. Well, and the the people that I've seen present it, uh, I I can't even remember who it was, but they were presenting it as uh, the opposite of penal substitutionary atonement because that just puts God as a as a child uh, as a cosmic child abuser, and and the the way that that takes uh, scripture and flips it on its head on what it actually should be, I, I found irresponsibly put forward before. 
that said, Daniel, I, I'm, I'm wanting you to, to put forward what logical inconsistencies you've heard about penal substitutionary atonement. We'll call it PSA just to keep it short. Okay. Um, I, one quick note is for uh, if you want to dismiss Chris's victor and say it's just ransom paid to death rather than paid to Satan. So that's kind of how you can bring those together. PSA, sure. so issues that you might find with that. So one issue would be dealing with the omnipotence of God and God's um, complete independence as um, the divine being that he has to contrive a mechanism to satisfy himself is strange, to say the least. That's, that's the first one that comes to my mind. What are y'all's thoughts on that? Let me say, there, there's two of them that I don't necessarily agree with, and I was hoping y'all would touch on this, but I guess I'll just have to do this podcast myself. Um, <laughs> so, Christus Victor, let me start there. So Christus Victor addresses that the the wages of sin is death. It, it basically takes it from an Adam standpoint and saying sin entered the world and, and or death entered the world through sin, and that this problem, whatever you want to call death, uh, it had to be atoned. And so it really only addresses Adam. And this is something that somebody from a Catholic background might support because they think sin is passed on through genetics just because it passes on one man to the other and so we are all a victim of Adam's sin and that's what Christus Victor is really doing. I do not agree with that at all and you got to be able to take it one step further and say that each individual is needing to be atoned and so the satisfaction uh, satisfactory uh, atonement uh, that one uh, again, I, I, I'm not comfortable with that because it, it really takes away the need of the individual to be atoned. And it's, uh, again, something that's really placed over, uh, or it's like a blanket over mankind. You'll see where I'm going with that. I, I think that the, satisfa the satisfaction theory can be used that way. And, and I'll, I'll say this to our listeners. Uh, we're going through so many different theories, different ideas about this. Um, and it's, it's not only is it hard to keep them all straight, but it's hard to keep straight what different groups use different theories for. So Stephen, I think you're getting at one of the problems of how some people use satisfaction theory, but it doesn't necessarily always have to be used that way. But you're, you're exactly sure. right in the problem that you're bringing up. Um, and I completely agree with you on the Christus Victor one as well. Daniel, dealing with, with your question about God having to contrive a way in order to satisfy himself, I think that that's not giving enough credit to the fact that God, God knew before the beginning of time that he was going to give people free will. In fact, that was the only way for him to have a relationship with them, so he gave them free will. But he knew that if they sinned, there needed to be some way for them to be joined back to him. So I think that it's a, it's a reasonable objection that you have to think about, but I, I think there are answers for it. Stephen, what do you think? All right, so before I say this, this is almost a, a personal opinion of mine. I am preferable to a legal system where things are defined. So we'll the allow satisfactory, it. Yeah. <laughs> the satisfactory uh, uh, atonement, it, it really almost comes off as it's up to the discretion. 
but whose discretion? This is where I'm a little hesitant. It's God's discretion. Of course, God's discretion takes precedent over anything. And so if God is the one that's basically saying, yeah, um, I, I like that guy, or I didn't really care for what that person did. I mean, there's really no way that we have any assurance at all if we are saved or not. Assurance, I mean, that is something that is scriptural, that we can have confidence. Uh, Paul speaks about, uh, uses the term confidence in our salvation, and this uh, satisfactory uh, uh, method of atonement really takes away from that. Because it's it's purely discretionary. Uh, what, what satisfies God? Right, and and God is very clear with us in Scripture how He is satisfied. Now we often get it wrong, and people in Scripture often confuse what God wants, and they have and they have to be corrected on what satisfies God. But God is not changing in, in what He wants. Um, he wants uh, contrite, contrite, obedient hearts. Uh, which often um, is shown, uh, is given to us as examples, as people who obey, people who listen to the call and do and do what he says, and following his commandments. So as as you continue to define what the uh, what satisfactions need to be met, then basically you are becoming one of the other methods that we talked about. Uh, and so it, it's very vague just to, you know, simply call it the uh, satisfactory atonement. If you pl place the satisfactions uh, that are listed under uh, penal substitution, if you put those constraints in and say these are what satisfy, then you've, uh, you've made this method of atonement the exact same as the other one. So it just seems incomplete. Let's take maybe three or four minutes to talk about each of these words. I, I think any of our listeners probably know the words individually, but it, it helps to think about them and how they are pieced together to help us think more about what it means. Whoever wants to go on this, can we give some definitions on penal, on substitutionary, and on atonement? What do those mean in the context of, of the work of Jesus? Okay, uh, when we're talking about satisfaction, Obviously, something is needing to be satisfied. Typically, that's understood to be God's wrath. God's wrath uh, needs something. Uh, it needs sac sacrifice. And so you, to satisfy God's wrath, you give it this perfect sacrifice. Uh, penal substitution, it's uh, the understanding it's a legal transaction um, and something is being substituted. So obviously, the thing being substituted are is us. Um, uh, believers, um, or you could make the case that it's anyone, depending on your ideas there, um, and they are being substituted uh, when they are subject to die by all righteousness, by all justness, because they have sinned, they have to go on to death, um, or eternal death, uh, that God substitutes his son um, instead of them, but because his son is divine, his son is able to um, not experience eternal death like they would have and also saves them at the same time. That's kind of the idea with penal substitution. Um, there are also, yeah, there are a lot of other terms. Like, go ahead. I was just going to say, we need to be lining these up with the actual verbiage that is used when described about uh, the need for salvation. Uh, sin separates us. Uh, and so we are trying to figure out how we are being reconciled um, and so, uh, 
if the penal, uh, if it's it's a penalty, and you're substitute substituting something again to satisfy the penalty. That's why I said that once you place in the uh, uh, what the uh, satisfaction needs are, then you could basically make this into uh, the penal substitution. Well, so, we did say at the beginning, substitu penal substitution is a subcategory of satisfaction right. theory. It's, so, right. makes sense. And so the substitution that was needed is the sacrifice because we are we were uh, atoned through uh, animal sacrifices uh, during the, well, not during the old law. The old law was fulfilled by Jesus. We were still... The law, all it was good for, as Paul tells us in Romans, it was basically to diagnose what the problem was. It, it, uh, I've heard it said that the law was a good diagnosis, but the gospel it, what, is a, a physician for us. And so the law told us what the problem was, but it didn't really give us a solution other than sacrifice. And now that we have the gospel, we know what the sacrifice is. I will note that Paul yeah, says that though um, no Jew ever, most Jews did not think that. They thought that their system was fixing the issue. Paul comes right, along they, later and says, no, nah, we didn't really fix it. Here's moments. something that'll fix it. So, no, and, and I, I'm, I'm agreeing with both of you here. What we know at post, uh, post cross is that all sins uh, of the world from before the cross and after the Christ after the cross were rolled together onto the shoulders of Jesus on the cross. Um, that that is that was the penalty that that um, or that was the uh, the sacrifice that had to be made in order to um, to to take away the penalty. Now that said, the Old Testament Jews thought. What was going, you know, that the that the blood of animals was doing the necessary work, and I think that we can reasonably think about it that way. That that's what God asked for. However, God knew uh, that ultimately all of those, the blood of all of those animals, were just a symbol for the ultimate sacrifice that was to be made. In fact, I mean, when you're reading the Old Testament, it seems like every other chapter is hinting. At this atonement that was going to come later, um, so that that was always the plan, even though it was not put into place until much later. Um, so we're running a little bit short on time. We probably have four or five minutes left. What are the big questions that we have about this? Are, are there things that um, that throw you off? That 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 you know keep you up at night and uh, maybe, maybe something that you're thinking about during a, a communion, uh, as you think about what was done for you. What questions do we think our, our listeners should be thinking about when they think about the atonement, the work of Christ? Just one. I had quickly mentioned it before that the the law, how it does roll over into the New Testament. It's not that we are not under the law anymore, because some people. I guess misinterpret when it does say that in Scripture, but it's not. We are we are not basically condemned to death by the law anymore. It's just that Jesus uh, has fulfilled that. A lot of people are under the misconception that the law does not affect us anymore. No, we're still under the law. It's just that Jesus has fulfilled it. 
uh, and that, that's something that I used to be very confused about because if you read the that we're not under the law and leave it at that, it really is an incomplete statement. You really need to know the big picture. Uh, a few comments I'll make. One, uh, for our listeners, if you are going to look into this topic, the text, I mean, the whole Bible is dealing with this clearly, um, but some important text that you'll want to check out is the last third of the book of Matthew, the last third of the book of John, all of Romans, and all of Hebrews, and Galatians. That's a lot of reading to do. If you can handle those five different passages, you're going to get five slightly nuanced uh, ideas for the atonement. And out of those passages, we get a lot of different theories. But obviously, I think the three of us here, the three Crouch brothers, all agree that you, you can begin to coalesce onto a more accurate understanding of the atonement. I, I would also add, though, that I, I think the atonement, like the doctrine of the Trinity, is also um, what is considered a sacred mystery, and that it is not totally fathomable by humans, that we may not truly understand what is going on there. But I, I think it's certainly worth our time to try to understand, and those are some of the passages that you'll want to read. Now, uh, more directly addressing what Michael asked, I do want to say some of my issues that I'll, I'll force onto the listeners that you may want to consider. It's always important to question our, our presupposed theories and ideas to make them better. And so the questions I think that are, are worth asking is, okay, what theories are scriptural? But then some more questions that we don't always ask, what theories do not, that make, make the most sense of God and his knowledge and his power. Um, how can we understand satisfaction and penal substitution as well as ransom and moral um, theories as not making God subject to anything else? Where God is not subject to some outside law, God is not subject to some certain trait of his own uh, at the exclusion of his other traits. It's always important to ask these questions. And it's always also important to ask is there a way to save humans that doesn't involve death? Um, the Bible is very has a resounding voice that says death is a bad thing. Um, there's no doubt about that. And sometimes Christians forget that because we have hope. Um, but death in itself is bad. And so it's important to ask, why did Jesus have to die? Um, was there a way to do it without death? Um, and when we struggle with those questions, I think we'll come to a better understanding of the atonement. So I, I want to give one thought uh, for our listeners. Perhaps the next time uh, you're taking communion and, and your mind is wandering through these these stories, these these topics that we've talked about, um, I want to take take us to one of the things that Jesus says on the cross, specifically when he cries out in a loud voice, "My God, My God, why have you forsaken me?" And some people have read that scripture and and gasped as they, they read it as God the Father abandoning his son on the cross, that uh, God was somehow, uh, God, God the Father was moving away from his son at this most critical moment of the atonement. That said, I want to offer uh, a theory, what, the way I think um, Jesus was thinking about this on the cross. 
when he when he gasped out this this verse, it's Psalm chapter twenty two verse one. Because he was short for breath, uh, he was not able to quote the entire psalm. But in fact, that's actually what Jesus was was trying to communicate. What he was trying to communicate to his followers and anyone that was around him would have known the completeness of that psalm. That if you continue on in Psalm chapter 22, in fact, what seemed like abandonment by God the Father was not abandonment at all. In fact, God had never left him. Uh, Psalm chapter 22, verse 24. For he is not despised or abhorred the affliction of the afflicted, and he has not hidden his face from him, but has heard when he cried to him. And even then, you could even go on to chapter 23, which is one of the best-known psalms in all, all of Scripture, uh, that we see God walking with us even in the darkest of times. Um, while it seemed like the darkest moment of history, I think this is Jesus acknowledging that though it seems bad, God is with us even at this dark moment. I like that concept. I'm going to throw a challenge flag. <laughs> okay. And uh, Okay, so other than the footnote in your Bible that says Psalm 22, uh, 1, is it? Psalm chapter 22, verse 1. That's correct. Right. Uh, it says, my God, why have you forsaken me? Is that what the verse says? That is, that is what he is quoting, yes. Okay, so without being irreverent, how do we know that Jesus was quoting Psalm 22.1? Did he, under his breath, go, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Psalm 22.1. No. I, 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 and it seems like something that was appropriate for the moment. Are we sure that he was quoting that? or Because every time I say, how great is our God, I, are people going to say, well, he was quoting the, the verse that says that in the Bible? Or, I was just saying it. I, I didn't realize that somebody else had already said it. I, I'm just uh, being to defend, skeptical, sorry. To defend Michael, um, I have heard that before. Um, I've heard it specifically said, though this has been challenged by others, that that was very common for uh, Jews to do, especially since they didn't have psalm numbers like we did, that you refer to psalms um, by like their first line. Um, so by him saying that it's like, this is the title, um, for this idea and it introduces the ideas that come after it. Also, my God, my God, um, does seem slightly more specific, um, than just a general cry to my God, why have you forsaken me? And Stephen, I'm not dismissing, uh, your comment, but I, I think that, um, in, in order for this context to make sense, this is something that that we can go to as telling the whole story. So. You should have just said, Stephen, people a lot smarter than you have agreed with this, so why don't you just be quiet? I say that every <laughs> podcast I, and I, every I, I podcast was... you ignore me. <laughs> okay. All right. All right. So with that, I think we, we are going to conclude this podcast uh, join us next week as we continue on with more interesting topics. Thanks for listening.